Good morning. Let me tell you a story. It's the story of the early church. I want to tell you the story today of what happened in the book of Acts from chapter 3 to the end of chapter 4. Not long after the day of Pentecost, that day, what's the day of Pentecost? The day when Jesus promised to pour out his spirit on the church. The day of Pentecost, when the church grew from 120 scared believers to a megachurch of over 3,000 as thousands of people responded to the preaching of the gospel because of the empowering work of the Spirit. Not long after that day, Peter and John were walking to the temple to pray. And as they approached the temple to pray, they saw a man who was crippled. And he had been sitting on his rear begging for his whole life because of his disability. And as Peter and John were walking towards the temple, this crippled beggar calls out to them and they, he says, hey, you over there, can I have a few bucks? And Peter and John could have done what everyone else was doing, probably what you and I do when we see a homeless person, maybe ignore them, maybe shake their head and think about how pathetic that is. But not Peter. Peter looked straight at the crippled and he looked him right in the eye and he said, look at us. Look at us. And Peter looked at this man who had been disabled his whole life and he said, I don't have any money for you. I have something better. Now, if you've been crippled your whole life and sitting and begging, you don't really know if there's anything better than someone handing you a few bucks because life is pretty terrible at that moment. But Peter looks this man, locks eyes with him, and says, In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And Peter reaches down as if this man had only tripped for all his life, and he pulled him up to his feet. And for the first time, this crippled man was standing on his own two feet. What would you do if you were standing for the very first time? This man began to leap and dance and praise God because he realized that something miraculous had just happened in his body. And so in the temple, a place that was supposed to be quiet for a time of prayer, suddenly became a place of intense commotion as this man was running around and leaping and praising God. This was not an appropriate social moray during the time of prayer. But just as all the people began to be perturbed that someone was interrupting their prayer time, they started to see this man dressed in rags, and they started to realize, wait a minute, I know that man. I've seen him before. And everyone began to realize, that's the man who's been sitting and begging for as long as we can remember. So a crowd began to form around Peter and John and their new friend. And this wasn't a small crowd. It was in the thousands. And Peter, who was never worried about speaking up, began to preach to his audience. Peter preached to his Jewish brothers and sisters what he always preached to his Jewish brothers and sisters. Jesus Christ died. Jesus Christ rose 
Turn to Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Amazingly, on that day, the church grew from 3,000 to 5,000 as over 2,000 people responded to Peter's sermon. Well, because there was such commotion, the religious police showed up. The high priest and his cronies showed up and, and the temple guard came and they began to kind of wonder what the, all this commotion was about. And instead of being amazed that a man who had been disabled his whole life was now walking, they wanted to know by what power this man was able to walk. Talk about missing the point. So they decided that the best course of action was to arrest Peter and John. They slapped on the silver bracelets and they walked them to the station. It was too late to have a trial. Bureaucracy was as real back then as it is now. And so for the first time in the history of the church, two followers of Jesus and certainly not the last time in the history of the church, two followers of Jesus spent the night in prison because of their faith in Jesus. The next morning, the guards woke up Peter and John, and it was time for their trial. They brought them before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court was not going to take lightly that Peter and John were saying, the Messiah has come and you killed him, but he rose again. And the Jewish Supreme Court wanted to know, how does this man who had been disabled his whole life, why is he walking? And Peter, as bold and courageous as ever, but still respectful, mustered all the strength he could and spoke truth to power. And he said, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the one whom you crucified, but who God raised from the dead, is this man able to walk today? The Supreme Court was silent, and as if Peter had a moment where they were speechless, he said, and one more thing while we're at it. Salvation is found in no other name but through the name of Jesus Christ. The Supreme Court looked at Peter and John and they realized these are the most vanilla human beings there are. They're just ordinary fishermen. But then they took note, it must be because these men had been with Jesus. The Supreme Court didn't know what to do with bold, courageous men like this. Usually people would just buckle because the Sanhedrin told them what to do. They said, stop speaking in the name of Jesus. And Peter responded curtly but respectfully, it is better to obey God than men. The Supreme Court just threatened them and then they released them. Peter and John went back to the church and they reported everything that had happened. They told the church about how they had been arrested, about how the crippled man who had been crippled his whole life was now healed and they told the church that the religious authorities had threatened to persecute them if they didn't shut up about this miscreant Jesus. So what does the, high, the, the church do in the face of such persecution and in the face of these threats? They did what the church only knew to do. They prayed a prayer that went like this. 
Lord, you are the sovereign one who created all things. Just like King David told us would happen, people in authority have rejected and spurned the authority of your son Jesus. Though Herod and Pilate put Jesus to death, this was all part of your plan, Lord. Lord, in the face of these threats that are meant to silence the church, empower us to be bold. Continue doing the miraculous through the name of Jesus. Amen. After they had prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. All the believers were of one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared what they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them, for from time to time those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. What marked the early church? What were they like? What was unique and distinct about them? My prayer for us this morning as we think about the story of the early church, and it's just a snapshot, is that as we're in this campaign to raise money for a building, we've been doing this now for a couple years, I want us to kind of take a moment and just remember what the goal is. The goal is never a structure. The goal is always a mission. And what we see in the early church is that they were razor sharp in their commitment to the mission of God, which was to make disciples of all nations. I don't think the early church was by any stretch of the imagination perfect or heaven-like. Sometimes when we read the Bible, we think, oh, we need to be more like the early church, and we just see their faith, but we don't see their problems, and we don't see some of the dysfunction they went through. But what I do believe is that the book of Acts, and these stories in particular, teach us about what kind of church God envisions for his people. What are the marks of a church that is committed to the mission of God? I have three of them today. I know if you're taking notes, the outline says there's four. But don't freak out. There's only three. I did not forget the fourth. I just cut it for the sake of time. You'll thank me later. What are the marks of the early church? The first is this, boldness. Boldness. We live in a day and age where our greatest concerns and most prevalent fears revolve around our personal safety. We wait in line at the airport for three hours. We purchase guns and study crash test results before purchasing a car all in the name of what? Safety. The desire to be safe isn't a bad desire. But the actions of the early church directly challenge our assumptions about the priority of our safety. In the face of persecution and threats to the well-being of their bodies, the church doesn't pray, Oh, Jesus, keep me safe. They pray this in Acts 4.29. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great what? Boldness. Boldness. Have you ever wondered how we got here? How did we end up in a middle school on a Sunday morning in Royersford, Pennsylvania, 
gathered as the church to worship Jesus Christ. Think about this. So many of us have chosen to give our lives, our time, our allegiance, our worship to a man who lived 2,000 years ago in the Middle East. Have you ever pondered how you have even heard the name Jesus Christ? Some of you are like, yeah, my parents told me about Jesus, or a friend, or a pastor, or someone on the street. But who told them? And who told the person who told them? And who told the person who told them? How has the gospel of Jesus Christ made it from the city of Jerusalem in the first century where Jesus was executed and resurrected to Royersford, Pennsylvania in 2016? How does this happen? The boldness of the church. In the face of persecution and hostility, the first believers chose gospel boldness over fear, even at the expense of their own lives. Here's what I know about mostly middle-class suburban folks like us. Satan wants nothing more than for you and I to keep our mouths shut about Jesus because we have been raised to be polite. Satan uses shame, embarrassment, saving face, keeping our reputations, our absolutely out-of-control need for acceptance, and the sneers of our culture towards claims of absolute truth to keep us from speaking about Jesus Christ. Paul knew this would be a hard thing for the church. In Romans 1.16, he boldly declares, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. Let me just say this about what it means to be bold. Gospel boldness isn't determined by the volume of your voice or the charisma of your personality, but rather by your willingness to open your life up to the Spirit of God and witness to the reality of Jesus Christ in your life. Some people think boldness is only for people who are boisterous. Boldness doesn't mean brashness. It means a willingness to speak up when your life and reputation And what people say about you and your acceptance is on the line. Spring Valley, will we be a bold church? Will we be courageous? Will we be willing to speak up and speak out for Jesus? Not our political opinions. For Jesus. Even at the expense of our own reputations. Will you share Christ with those around you? The mission of God goes forward through the spirit-empowered boldness of his church. Here's the second thing, unity. Unity. So here's what humanity tends to do. Humanity tends to homogenize into groups. We homogenize based on our nationality, on our social status, our political affiliations, our race, our marital status, and our age. However, From the day of Pentecost on, the church was always meant to reflect the heart of God for people from all walks of life. The church of Jesus Christ is a place where Africans and Australians, Aboriginals and Americans, Moroccans and Mexicans, the ultra-rich and the homeless, Democrats, Republicans, liberals and conservatives, black, white and brown, single people, married people, divorced people, widows and orphans, the young and the old can gather in unity as the body of Christ. 
That's the church. Amen. Why? Why? Because the bedrock of unity in the true church has never been the color of our skin, our musical preferences, or who we're going to vote for in November. Good luck with that, by the way. The bedrock of unity is the person and work of Christ alone. The resurrected, victorious Christ as the living word of God, that's our message. We can get involved in other places, but the heartbeat, the drumbeat, the core unity of the church is always Jesus. The reason the early church was of one heart and one mind I mean, how can you get 5,000 people together and they have one heart and one mind? You have a family of like four and you can't even get everyone to agree on where you're going to go to dinner. Why can the early church, over 5,000 and growing, be of one heart and one mind? Why can Spring Valley Community Church disagree about a lot of things but have razor-sharp unity because of our common experience with Jesus. The church wasn't fractured over carpet colors, the volume of the music, help us Lord, or nostalgia. Nostalgia ruins churches. Nostalgia ruins our walk with Christ. Lord, if it was just like it was way back then, things would be better now. God wants to do a new thing. How about we get excited about the new things God wants to do? What if we close the door on the past and say, God, we celebrate your faithfulness there, but today is a new day, and things might look different, and the people we reach might look different, and our music might sound different, and our preaching might sound different, but it's from this ancient book. Nostalgia will wreck your relationship with the Lord because you'll always be missing about what he wants to do today in the messed up culture in which we live. Spring Valley, what will we unify around? Will it be our preferences? Will it be our socioeconomic status? Will it be our politics? Will it be our denomination? I want to lead a church that reflects the diversity of the kingdom of God. I hope and pray that as we grow and reach more people for Jesus Christ, and I believe that when we move from Royersford to North Coventry and our ministry begins to, to grow and expand in the Pottstown region, let me just say this clearly today, you heard this on May 22nd, 2016, that this church would grow in diversity and our hearts and our arms and our seats would be open to people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Why? Because that's what heaven's going to be like. And we can experience heaven on earth right here today in 2016 as we begin to see God bringing in more people who don't maybe look like you. And that is a praise God moment because brothers and sisters in Christ unify around Christ. I propose that like the early church, Spring Valley would be, be a people that unifies around Jesus Christ and what he's done. I want to lead a church that sees that our time is short. And as Peter says, the end of all things is near. And the foundation of our unity 
is the belief that God wants to empower us with his spirit to be his witnesses to our community that desperately needs Jesus Christ. The hope of the world is Jesus, and we have him, and we must share him boldly. Third mark of the early church, generosity. One of the clearest marks of a church that has been touched by the power of the Holy Spirit is that they have an uncoerced, I want to say this clearly, an uncoerced desire to be generous with their resources. So when we read scriptures like Acts 4, 34, and 35, some people think, oh, it kind of looks like the early church practiced socialism. They were not mandated by the Roman Empire to share their resources with one another. Nor did Peter stand up and guilt people and manipulate people and saying, okay, everyone who's rich, sell your homes and give money to everyone who's poor. That's not how it worked. Why was the church willing to sell their property to meet the needs of their brothers and sisters in Christ? They were simply obeying Jesus. Luke 12, 33, sell your possessions and give to those in need. This will store up treasure for you in heaven. Through the prompting of the Holy Spirit and in light of the grace they had experienced from Jesus Christ, the early church practiced radical generosity. They started thinking about how their resources could be used to help those in need and continue the advancement of the gospel. The church deeply cared for one another in their tangible expression of caring for the neediest among them. One thing emerges as you read through the book of Acts. The early church didn't need to be convinced that they were supposed to be generous. They knew following Jesus Christ meant a lifestyle of radical generosity. So yesterday, I got maybe one of the most moving emails I've ever received in my almost 10 years of being pastor at this church, being a pastor at this church. There's a young woman who moved away, her and her husband, John. They moved away about a year, a little over a year ago, right, Andrew? A little over a year ago. Her name's Ashley, Ashley Esposito. And you know, if you get our emails, that we've been asking all of you just to kind of communicate what you're planning to give during this last year of the Base Camp Initiative. And really soon after Ashley moved away, she was diagnosed with a various or a very serious form of cancer. And so I sent the email out yesterday just to remind all of you, hey, would you just uh, remember to uh, bring your pledge cards today? We're going to receive those. And I got this email from Ashley. And I was sitting at my kitchen table, and my kids were there, and my wife was there, and I read it. And I put my phone down, and I, I just I began to weep. And I asked Ashley, can I share this email with our church? So I'm going to read you the first email she wrote me, and then I'm going to read you the second email she wrote me after I asked her if it was okay. And this is the best part of the whole sermon. Whatever happened up there, you're going to be like, that was sort of, that was fine. This is, this is where it's at. Listen to what Ashley says. And excuse me. You probably aren't aware but since John and I moved away, we've kept up our commitment to the Base Camp Initiative. I've been undergoing treatment for cancer for the last year or more. 
And while I had a very successful surgery to remove the large primary tumor, the metastatic cancer in my lungs returned and is a very serious threat. In the coming months, I will hopefully begin clinical trial treatments that could prolong or even save my life. My preference, now now think about this. This person wrote this to me, trying to get into a clinical trial because their chances of survival aren't great. Catch this. My preference for the base camp initiative would be to continue to pay the monthly commitment we made until the end of the three-year cycle. That said, if I had to travel frequently for treatments far away, or if something happened to me where I was no longer handling our finances, that could disrupt our commitment. <laughs> no kidding, right? <laughs> like we're all like, yeah, like that's okay. And I wrote her back and I said, Ashley, your faith, your desire to be generous in the face of your own death moves me. Can I share that with our church? And what she wrote back to me was better than what she wrote the first time. Joe, feel free to share. I should let you know that I feel God has provided for us through this season because we've chosen to be faithful to his direction in giving. Insurance has, for the most part, covered almost all of our medical expenses until now. Friends have been generous in gifts And my new employer, in addition to the superior insurance, has protected my position even though they've had no legal obligation to and provided sick leave to the degree that I have had no interruption to my income in spite of more than a semester of absence in the 2015 calendar year. It is admittedly difficult to trust God as the challenges continue to come. Though I know that is exactly what he's asking me to do. However, I know that he prepared us for this challenge by providing jobs that would care for us financially and bring us closer to one of the best hospitals. And I even consider the fact that I was able to get excellent life insurance on myself at a cheap rate less than a year before my diagnosis. A blessing that takes a huge burden off my mind. I continue to seek his healing and appreciate your prayers. There is something that moves me to the core of who I am. To hear a woman who is, I think she's younger than me, or right in my age bracket, I'm 34, to be staring into the face of her own mortality and declaring Even in the midst of that, I want to be faithful to the Lord. I just want to challenge you with that because that radically challenged me. Generosity always marks the church because it's safe to give. And what I love that Ashley tells us is, is in the faithfulness God has provided And some of us, when we talk about generosity and we see it in the early church, we just think, oh, that's not for me or I'm not ready to go there yet. But maybe the lesson that we haven't gotten and maybe the lesson I haven't been clear on is this. As we trust God with our giving and we live to be generous, he meets our needs. It goes in that order. 
See, what we often want to do is, we often want to say, God, when you provide for me, I'll be generous. But what does Ashley say? As I've been faithful in my giving, the provision has followed me. We look at the early church, selling their possessions, sharing with those who are in need, trusting God for his provision. Spring Valley, let me ask us this question. Will we be a radically generous church? Will we choose to walk in faith and not give only out of our excess, but also in sacrificial obedience? Will we demonstrate profound faith in our giving, or will we bow to our fears? This sermon is really about this question. What kind of church do we want to be? I believe God wants his church to be marked by spirit-empowered boldness, unified around the person and work of Jesus, and radically generous for the cause of Christ and the good of others. This morning, as we commit ourselves in this final year of the Base Camp Initiative, I want us to also commit to being a church that reflects biblical values. Our gifts to the Base Camp Initiative aren't simply going towards a physical structure. They're going towards the mission of disciple-making. I hope we make some disciples like Ashley. Our gifts to the Base Camp Initiative will echo into the generations that follow us that we thought providing a place for them to gather to worship Jesus, to hear the gospel of Jesus proclaimed, and live out the mission of Jesus was worth every sacrifice we make. Listen, when I walk into a church... Now that I've been leading a capital campaign and we've been in a building project, when I walk into a different church, I rarely go to another church because I'm here. But when I go to another church, the few times I've had to go and I walk into those structures, do you know what my thought is when I walk in? Someone else paid for me. Someone else thought that it was important enough to give their resources so that this place could be built and I could hear about Christ. I know I preach Christ, but it also is deeply encouraging to me to hear about him from other preachers. You need to know that part of giving to this base camp initiative is giving to the future of your children and maybe your grandchildren if God allows you to stay in the area that long. Someone has to sacrifice. One generation of the church has to lay it down for the good of the next generation of the church. I believe that's us. Our gifts to the Base Camp Initiative is a declaration that we want Jesus to build his church and we want him to do it through us. This morning, before we make our pledges, whether we're just updating our pledge saying, I'm just going to finish out my pledge or I'm making a new pledge, I pray that all of our pledges reflect a sacrifice. I know that many of us have already sacrificed. I want to be careful to say that too. But before we do that today, before we talk about words like sacrifice and giving, before we kind of do this symbolic act of handing in our pledge card, we need to be reminded that we are people who have been deeply sacrificed for. I want to invite you this morning to join me at the Lord's table as we celebrate communion. Ushers, if you'd come. Communion is for all people who love and worship Jesus Christ. You don't have to be a part of our church. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're welcome to receive communion this morning. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I want you to know that he loves you and cares for you deeply. 
and that you can whisper to him right now, Jesus, my life is yours. You died for me, you rose for me, and I need your forgiveness. And he will come into your life. Let us ponder the great sacrifice of our king this morning. I love the definition of sacrifice. Giving up something you love for something you love more. You think about God sending his son who he loved in ways that we'll never understand. And yet, sending him knowing that the sacrifice of his life was something the Father wanted so that you and I can know him. We never have to wonder about the depth of the love of Christ. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus was with his main guys. Peter and John were there. And he looked around the table and he said, this is my body broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And after supper, he poured some wine and he took a cup and he looked at that cup and he says, this cup is my blood and it represents the new covenant, the new promise of God, not relating to people on the basis of the law, not holding us accountable to the law when we put our faith in Jesus. This is precious blood. This is actually only grape juice, but it represents the most precious commodity that never runs dry in all the world, the cleansing blood of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, we're going to close a little differently today. I'm going to invite our ushers to come back forward. I'm going to ask all of us to stand. We're going to receive our offering now. We're also going to receive our Base Camp Initiative pledge cards. I'm going to ask you to drop these in the buckets as they go by. If you are planning to give this morning, you can drop that in as well. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to leave this place today. We'll receive our offering, but as we're receiving it, we're going to sing and worship together. And then afterwards, Jeff will close us in prayer and you'll be dismissed. Lord, thank you so much for your great grace in our lives. I pray over Spring Valley Community Church today that we would be bold. Lord God, that we would be so filled with love and compassion for people that we would share Christ with them. Empower us afresh with your spirit to make us bold witnesses for Christ. Lord, I pray that nothing would come between us as a church. I pray that our unity would be built on Christ. And Lord, I pray that you would challenge us and lead us to generosity through the work of your spirit and through our obedience to Christ. Lord, do all you want to in us so you can do all you want to through us. Our best days are in front of us. We honor the name of Jesus this morning. Amen and amen.